Hello, and welcome to My Bright Idea, the stories behind successful small businesses. I'm your host, Cameron Glenar, and I am so excited for you to join us today because this is the first episode. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. You're too kind. Please sit down. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I want to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about myself and why I created this podcast. Now, I think I should get this out of the way. I'm not a small business owner. I do have a sole proprietorship because I'm a real estate agent, and that's just there to help me with taxes and whatnot and separate my real estate income from my day-to-day finances. You know, fun stuff. But the reason I created this podcast is because I've always had sort of a fascination with small businesses and an admiration for the folks that not only have the guts to start their business, but the smarts to make their businesses thrive. And I've always been curious about how they made that happen. So that's where I'm coming from, a place of curiosity and wonder. And if you, the listener, can hear these stories and gain a new sense of inspiration and perhaps newfound knowledge of what it takes to make these businesses thrive, all the better. Now get ready. It's time to hear some words of wisdom from today's guest, Mr. Zach Crone. He's the president and founder of California Coast Auctions, which specializes in conducting auctions for charities and schools and nonprofits. But Zach also has the privilege of being the auctioneer for celebrity estates. And if you can imagine, there are some pretty interesting things that are being auctioned off at these events, which we'll hear about, like an $18,000 toilet seat cover. What? You're not going to want to miss this. Zach, thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you, Cameron. Pleasure to be here, sir. Now, I'm sure you must have a ton of fun stories to share about some of the auctions you've held. But first, I want to know where all this began, because I can't imagine many people in their young lives are sitting there saying, that's what I want to do when I grow (laughs) up. (laughs) You are completely right. Auctioneering um, is one of those outlier professions but honestly, it's been around for thousands of years and it's a beautiful profession because it's kind of the last bastion of completely uninterrupted, unadulterated free market capitalism. So how did you get into this? <laughs> In a previous life, right out of college, I was an on-camera news correspondent for Reuters and I worked in their entertainment division. I started by getting coffee and wrapping cable and driving the van and then it eventually evolved to holding the boom mic and carrying the camera and assisting the reporter and watching the movie that the reporter didn't want to watch and, you know, write 500 words on that. And then started working with an avid editing machine, then started producing the segments. And then they finally put me on camera and I was on the red carpet going to movie premieres and award shows, interviewing people. And it was always hilarious because the men never wanted to talk to me because I was always taller than them. And they didn't look good on camera. And um, the women were lovely and more than happy to talk to me. But all of their handlers and publicists and managers said, make sure you mention the necklace and the dress and who designed it. And, and, you know, it doesn't really fulfill you as a human being to be talking about what other people are wearing. At least it didn't for me. I'm sure it does for others. So by virtue of having that job, you're expected and it is your pleasure and honor to 
be the MC at various fundraisers when asked upon. It's a very common practice where you'll see, you know, Fred Rogan or Dallas Reigns or somebody like that become an MC at a at a nonprofit event, and that was me for a period of time. Right. These are the uh, local newscasters in that's Southern right. California. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. And there, yeah, isn't Dallas Reigns? That's a pretty obvious weatherman name, right? right? I've always loved <laughs> his name. Uh, which I met him at an airport. Sweet guy. Love he hey. he is so animated and fun on TV. I bet he. I bet he's a really good MC. He is a tan, happy, loving individual. Um, the so you go to these events at like the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and the Disney Concert Hall and you know the W and these big, beautiful, lavish events and all these celebrities are there and all these important big wigs and whatever walk of life and they've paid a ton of money to be there to commiserate, to network, and to give and to be seen giving. And when it comes time to introduce the auctioneer, the nonprofit clearly didn't know that there was a distinction in skill sets. It's kind of like that of law or medicine. Just because someone's both a doctor doesn't mean both are brain surgeons. Uh, And so I'd introduce the auctioneer and God love them. They're great at what they do, but it didn't really apply to have a commercial auctioneer come out onto the stage and saying, how y'all doing tonight, Hollywood? Let's sell the first item. And everyone's like, what? And everyone just tuned out immediately, like nobody listened, and he lost the crowd. And I saw this dozens upon dozens of times, over and over and over again. And I said, like, there's a need here. Something's missing. And so I saw the niche. And I have a background in theater and performance and on-camera work. And so I just knew I could improv my way through this. It didn't look too terribly hard for someone. It it was an adjacent skill set. And so we'll talk more about adjacent skill sets in a bit because that's <laughs> that's pretty important. Um, when it comes to the need and the niche, like what what were you thinking? The need is to get rid of that voice. The need was to retain attention and to make it entertaining for this crowd and slow things down to where they weren't intimidated and they could hear you and you could usher them through the process rather than go so fast. There was no need to go fast. You weren't trying to liquidate hundreds of items. So when I was called to ask, you know, to do an MC job, I said, Hey, I'll do your auction too. And they said, have you ever done auctions before? And I had seen plenty of auctions. (laughs) And so I said, yes, yes, I can do an auction. There was an opportunity and I knew I could do better than the car auctioneer or cattle auctioneer that they were considering otherwise. And I did it. And it just became this fun improv thing I would hate to watch a video of it now, but people could understand me and they could hear me and I'd make jokes about why they should bid again. And, and it became auctiontainment. And it's not like I invented this by any means. There's been people, especially on the East coast doing it for 20 some odd years. And the Southern California gentleman who kind of was the godfather of benefit events was a gentleman named Chuck Dreyer who passed away, I believe in 2010 and he had this kind of cordial MC host way about him. And Ed Arnold, who did PBS News, was doing them a lot. And then, of course, you'd have your athletes and weathermen do them too. But I just found so much joy in doing it, so much more so than red carpet reporting, that one became two, two became four, four became eight. And before I knew it, I was having more fun, sleeping better at night, knowing that I was raising good money for nonprofits, that I decided to leave Reuters and the TV world in general, because I was jumping around in the in the production side of things as well, that it, it empowered me to move back to my home in Orange County 
And, you know, it's like people say this all the time. I did my nickel in LA. I'm happy to be back in San Diego or Orange County or whatever. And, and formed California Coast Auctions in September of 2011. Well, congratulations. And how's it been since? Ever since, it was just a growing enterprise. It, it started off with maybe 20 to 30 events in, in its inception year. And then it just, by virtue of, you know, you have to kind of prove your value by doing, I could have marketed all I wanted, but it was really about seeing people and them seeing me and then handing my card to people who came at events. You see a lot of the same people, they're kind of on a circuit. It's like their friend is the chair of the event or their friend's being honored. So they're going to come and then they're going to say, Hey, come to my event. And then they do. And you meet a lot of these same people and they all sit on the board or the chair or the committee of this, that, or the other nonprofit school or hospital, whatever the case is. And it grew and grew and grew to the point where I had needed enough. I had enough overflow to have seven auctioneers working underneath me. And in 2019, we did 265 benefit events, which I'm told was the third most in the nation. I personally probably conducted anywhere between 80 to 100 of those. And, and that's all, all in one year. And what, what kind of geographic range did you have where you were doing all of those? I'd say about 75% were in the tri-county area of LA, San Diego, and Orange County. But there was also plenty of events held throughout the nation. Uh, it, it brought me to New York, Tampa, plenty in Vegas, Boise, Idaho. So you go wherever the work is, and it, it really came down to availability because you would. There was only so many Saturdays during the benefit auction season, which is prototypically March through May, and again from September through Thanksgiving, with a few more outliers in December. So you would you would take an event that was out of state, but you would have to realize like, oh, if I do an event in New York on a Saturday. That means I can't do an event on a Friday or a Sunday. So it wasn't always the most profitable endeavor. So oftentimes you make relationships with auctioneers located in other markets and collaborate the same way, say, as a real estate agent, you would have a friend who wanted to sell his house in La Jolla, but you were based in Huntington Beach. You might split the listing with a with a local agent who could do the showing and could, you know, do the open house and things of that nature. Yeah, it's very common. Now, take me back. You you mentioned that you had gotten to a point where you had seven employees. How long yeah. since uh, from when you started until you realized, oh, I am getting so much business, I need to hire somebody? I think 2013 was the first time I reached out to my friend Vincent Zapian, who I met working in auction.com trustee real estate sale. And Vincent Zapian, I can't say enough good things about him. Um, a wonderful devout man of faith. He really, he was one of the first Chicano auctioneers and definitely the first bilingual auctioneer in the United States. And he had certainly paid his dues amongst somewhat, you know, kind of the good old boys and the prejudice. And, and sadly, he still gets some prejudice against him when he's like working at the Balboa Bay Resort. And he's like waiting out front and people think he's the valet and they throw him his keys and then they see him on stage later. So he just rolls with it. But oh, wow. Yeah, no, that, that, that still happens. And uh, it's a, it's a false pretense that most people, you know, you try to work against and shed. But I started to need help really, really quickly because there was only so many Saturdays. You know, there's only three to four viable Saturdays every month. So as soon as those are spoken for, you have to kind of transfer into a consultant role. And 
have someone else represent your firm on the night of, because you've got to be somewhere else. And then, then it just kind of naturally grew from there where one piece of business advice is you meet the same people on the way up as you do on the way down. Cause there was plenty of people who had zero faith in me and other aspects of the auction industry. And then about a year or two goes by and they're asking me for work. And that was, that was an interesting transition to know how to deal with. And it's just be kind to everybody <laughs> every step of the way. It's the best lesson learned. Yeah. That'll take you a long way. And you also mentioned earlier working with charities and nonprofits. Is that something that was a, a goal for you? Absolutely. I, I never really found myself to be the perfect fit at commercial auctions. Um, I dabbled in the car auction world. It's, that's a very hard-nosed world, uh, very cat-clawing, not just amongst the auctioneers, but amongst the, the, the bidders as well. These are people who are buying for commerce as opposed to charity. And I tried the auction world in, in auction.com with real estate. And I actually did really enjoy that. And I found a lot of joy in it, but it was just kind of clock in, clock out. With a nonprofit, you are learning more about what they do. You're meeting the people they serve. You're touring their facilities. You're developing a kind of a marketing strategy for how to inspire, motivate, or incentivize people to give. You, you really get your hands in it and kind of serve as an auxiliary committee member. And, and that's the part I, I truly did enjoy to the point where I became a development director for a year and helped kind of sharpen my teeth on the other side of the fence, which gives me the perspective to, to help clients from the consultant standpoint. So there's a lot of behind the scenes uh, stuff that happens, you know, Tons. being an auctioneer, I'm sure. On the day of an auction, all people I what I can imagine all people really know of the auctioneer is the person standing up there you know holding the mic doing their thing but will you walk me through a typical day you know when you wake up in the morning and arrive <laughs> at the location usually you're you're trying to rest from the auction the night before and you're getting your final script prepared for your item pitch and make sure it's accurate to the information that you've been provided your kind of fine tuning your script for everything from intro, outro, any MC work and getting, you know, some holes filled as far as information. Cause a lot of the times it's, it's relatively last minute. It's very live theater like that. And you, you don't know how you're going to pull it off, but you always do. Yeah. And are you teaching yourself about the items that you're about to auction off? Yeah, that it's a long conversation, a series of conversations before we even get to that point, because these these nonprofits have this procurement apparatus to try to get items and they take m my advice on which items to chase after. And then we have a conversation about out of these hundred items, what seven do we think are going to be best suited for the live auction? Oh, this one's too much like this one, or this is only available Sunday through Thursday, or he says it's worth $8,000 and wants to set a reserve of 4,000 when we don't think we can even get 3000 for something like this. So all of those factors play into it to determine what items are actually going to make it to auction. And then of course you have to pick those items before they go to print on any sort of bid card or program. And, you know, so the printer has enough time to turn around and, and make those. And you have to be very cautious about, you know, there's a marketing scheme in how you present that information. If, if something's not available in December, you, you say it's available for a mutually agreed upon date or, that's that usually covers all manner of sin in such a way. And if it's only available Sunday through Thursday, then you can say it's available five days out of the week. <laughs> so it's, sure. it's, there's, as you know, with, with how you would write an open house and write a description, you're trying to stir emotion when you are presenting an item because you're selling 
let's say if I was selling a trip to Mexico, you're not selling the hotel room. You're selling the fantasy of everything you can do in Mexico. For a lot of these people who are of means, buying a trip to Mexico is, they're not going to have to put a lot of thought into it because they're not, they're not selling the farm to buy it. Right. So you're just trying to make it sound fun as well. And I love to include humor into the description because that's kind of the most boring part. So if I was doing something like, this is your chance to enjoy six days, no nights, just days, in a beautiful two-bedroom home on beautiful Oahu on the South Shore, wide in front of Waikiki Beach. This is your perfect chance to enjoy all the fishing, swimming, hiking, biking, tennis, surfing, golfing, shopping, sailing, dining, drinking, snorkel, scuba, laughing, kissing, hugging, dancing, prancing, and romancing. And if you don't want to rest and relief of refreshing relaxation and rejuvenation and regale and rejoice a remarkable rendition of refined recreation, you can always sit at the spa where you can have drinks with cougars and divorcees looking to have a wonderful time with you before you paddle out into the moonlight and start a new life together with your loved one. What a wonderful trip to Oahu this could be. And so it it takes on a life of its own in the description process. And then you hopefully get them laughing because if they're laughing, they're paying attention. And if they're paying attention, they're more than likely to bid. And once they start bidding, the auction itself is interlaced with plenty of jokes and one-liners and interaction with people. You know, sir, we're at $3,500 looking to bid at 4,000. If you bid at 4,000, I can promise you, sir, it's a lot cheaper than alimony. And do you have a birthday or anniversary, sir, coming up in the next 12 months? This package is for you. If you don't bid, we're going to send you to Fresno, California, where you can enjoy everything Fresno has to offer, like Arby's, Chevron, and cassette tapes, all (laughs) in the same store. The key to a good auction really is to make them curious as to what you're going to say next. It's kind of how a comedian can formulate an opinion and make that opinion go down that much smoother because you're laughing in the process. I remember I was at a gala and there were a lot of celebrities there and they were giving away things to be auctioned off. And Wayne Gretzky was up there mm-hmm. and he was providing tickets to his uh, hockey team in Arizona. And for whatever reason, nothing like people weren't bidding on it. Mm-hmm. So he upped the ante uh, just before, uh, you know, he was about to get off stage and he said, how about. I send you there on my private jet. There you go. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody started uh, bidding at it. Do you ever have to increase what people are receiving in order to get the bids moving? I mean, I love spontaneity and I love kind of trickling out those things. And usually those things are kind of preordained and we know they're going to happen. We just want them to happen in the right spot. There was a situation I was working with um, Seth Rogen for Hilarity for Charity. And I had done that event for like four years in a row. And this was the particular year right before that Steve Jobs movie came out that Seth Rogen was in where he played Steve Wozniak. Yeah. And the package was lunch with Steve Wozniak. And there was people in the crowd that were happily bidding on that. And it got up to like $130,000. And then it kind of like stalled because the two guys who were bidding on it were clearly people in the tech world who have a, you know, interest in talking to Steve Wozniak, you know, the the genius engineer behind a lot of Apple products. And then Seth came on and said, I'll go, I'll join you for lunch too. And then boom, the auction cleared 200,000 in a, in a matter of seconds. And Judd Apatow was sharing the stage with me and he's like, I want to come. This sounds like fun. And before we knew it, we were over 300 K. And then I said, Hey, would you guys want to go to lunch twice? And we sold and we doubled it. Spont- spontaneously and raised over 600,000 on a package that stalled out at 130. So spontaneity certainly plays a role. And usually there is a donor who, you know, saw how well the auction was going. They didn't donate 
prior to the event, but they saw that things were going well and people were, you know, the money was hot, the room was hot. And so they threw in something They came up and whispered in my ear in between auction items. And I said, guess what? Mr. Sagerstrom is throwing in a chance to have a villa in Pelican Hill with a Rolls Royce taking you there and back with dinner at Javier's or something like that. And people love that because they love it for the same reason they attend a movie or they attended church or they attend a concert is you want to feel something. You want to feel something beyond the mundane and feel like you're a part of something special. And, and you do feel very, very good. People are so elated, eyes dilated after a fun and exciting live event of any nature, whether that be an auction where money is flying out of the room higher than you ever thought imaginable, just to witness someone spend that much impulsively is really fun to see. It's kind of lifestyles of Robin Leach, you know, lifestyles of rich and famous kind of thing. It's, it's really quite exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I just, I can't wait. I need to hear <laughs> some of the, the, the fun things that you've sold. Tell me what's, what's the most unusual thing that you sold that just okay. something that, I got, that at the time was just unimaginable. So many weird things to talk about. It really depends on the organization. There's a wonderful organization that's in the LGBTQ community. And so we sold a basket of lube and toys and people were bidding like crazy. And that was hilarious. I worked with another organization. They sold, they were selling a a grave plot, you know, for you to be like buried in with the casket. And, Mm -hmm. and so I was like, you know, how can we spice this up? So we bought, a, like a $300 skydiving package. <laughs> and, we, <laughs> and we started by selling it as a skydiving experience. And it just so happens to come with a grave plot and a casket. I mean, one thing leads to another. Right. right. Just in case, you know, we got you all taken <laughs> care of there. And this was donated by State Farm Life Insurance and everyone. Uh, of course. Um, yeah. I mean, I've gotten to sell some cool, weird, wacky items. I, um, you know, I sold the last thing Ringo Starr has autographed because he he doesn't do autographs anymore. And this was like documented to be he's not doing autographs. This was the last thing he autographed and made it all the more special. I sold the first two door Rolls Royce that came to American soil for like the first time in 100 years. Oh, that's big. That was really cool. That sold for a ton of money, as you would expect. And with my work with Julian's Auctions, which is a wonderful auction house up in Beverly Hills, who's kind of the new kid on the block. You know, you think Sotheby's and Christie's and Bonhams and Butterfield or Julian's is, you know, it's been around for quite some time, but at the same time, compared to the hundred year auction houses, they focus mainly on sports, rock and roll memorabilia, movie memorabilia, and, and things of that nature. So I've gotten to do the estate of Jerry Lewis and, you know, a large portion of Steve Martin memorabilia, Burt Reynolds. The list kind of goes on and on. And we did Slash, so this was, this was a funny thing. So we did the auction for Slash and and he had some really cool stuff, as you would imagine, guitars and lighters and, you know, furniture. And there was this one very interesting piece of furniture. I didn't know what it was. It kind of looked like the skeleton of a hobby horse where it had like the place where you put your feet and kind of like a place where you lean your knees and then a place okay. where you put your arms. And I was like, the only way to sit on this thing is to like lean forward and arch your back. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell where I'm going with this, but it's I'm getting the picture. Yeah, it's essentially a spanking table. <laughs> and it's, wow. it's, it's, so I was like, okay. Let's, I wonder uh, if that's something you show off to your friends when they come visit your house. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I have a, a very good friend, and he's like a huge Burt Reynolds fan, and he bought a lot of like the old school, you know, bandit costumes and whatnot, and. 
he he just thought it would be so hilarious to buy a Burt Reynolds silk monogrammed robe. And so that's like his like favorite possession. I did the estate of Bill Wyman, the famous bassist for the Rolling Stones. Hmm. And this guy collected everything throughout the course of his career. If there was a any trinket or ephemera that the Rolling Stones created on any tour that he was on, he got one of them. He, hmm. he loved his merch. And the Rolling Stones have licensed their logo to anything. And in that collection was a Rolling Stones toilet seat cover. <laughs> and, a big a big tongue on your toilet seat yeah like you know like what your grandma would have it's like goes over the top lid of the toilet seat and it was like yellow and shag carpet with the rolling stones tongue and lips label and that sold for like eighteen thousand dollars i think i made eighteen thousand dollars yeah for a toilet seat cover for a toilet seat cover and I made a joke, kind of tongue in cheek, because like, did we just set a record for the world's most expensive toilet seat cover? And sure enough, we just called Guinness because they were kind of the backstop for for these sorts of things. And they said, no, you you just set the record. So I, Zachary wow. Crow, can proudly say that I have the record for toilet seat cover. That is incredible. And God, I I can't imagine uh, who buys. A toilet seat, like okay, so this must be the ultimate merch collector, like yeah. somebody that started out with stickers and T-shirts, and then they move their way up to guitars, and then it's like, oh, what do I get next? Oh, the toilet seat cover, of course. Yeah, it's like the one thing you don't have. That's what made it so special because it might be hard to find. It was a limited production relief. People get connected to items because they're connected to it from a nostalgia, memory, emotional standpoint. That's why anybody collects anything, whether it was baseball cards as a kid, because their dad took them to Dodger Stadium to see Sandy Koufax play. And there was just such happy memories with with that. Um, You know, toys, there's a huge market for that. And anything celebrity related, Hollywood related, art world, you know, something that stirs you and moves you that people like to buy art as well because it can be a showpiece and it will appreciate and value with the right name. So yeah. And, and that's really something you think about when you think about Christie's or, you know, Sotheby's mm-hmm. one of these big auction houses is the, the big pieces of art. Right. And Julian's kind of cornered the market on street art. So a lot of the modern artists like Banksy and all of the ingenues in that wonderful field is, is where Julian's tends to focus on. And this was, this was kind of an interesting story. So I didn't even know it until like after, but there was, there was a Banksy piece that he rigged with like a small explosive device. So it become destroyed. It was at an auction, not Julian somewhere else. And I believe this piece just exploded spontaneously combusted. And the bidder still like, I I think wound up buying it in its deformed, you know, wreckage state. So fast forward, Several months later, Julian's is doing an auction with a Banksy piece in it. And it was the first piece to come up for sale after that explosion has happened. And lo and behold, there I am getting ready to sell this thing. And there's all this media there. And it's really weird. Like no one is there for you. They're there to see the piece explode next to you. It's like, that's how race car drivers must feel. (laughs) Like no one's there to watch you race. (laughs) yeah it's kind of an interesting thing so i was like totally leaning towards the left side of the podium and like you know looks like the auction's gonna be an explosive sale today and making those tongue-in-cheek jokes but you never know what's gonna happen (laughs) have you ever seen anything go terribly wrong um 
I've heard stories of things going terribly wrong. Uh, there was, you know, as far as terribly wrong is how do you define that? Because if you're a good auctioneer and a good consultant, you'll recognize the red flags before they happen. And, you know, most of the time people are saying things like, you know, I want the bidding to start off at 20,000 on this glass bust of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And it was like, who in this room is going to spend that? And why would we start that high? And that, you know, that when there's ego tied into an item, you, you try to nip that in the bud. It's a lot like being an engineer where you see this building and it starts swaying in the wind and you start thinking of all the, all the weak spots and filling it. I'm maybe it's because I block it from my memory, <laughs> but I, I know I can't really say that I've seen things go terribly wrong. Well, that's I, I, I keep auctioneers, but in general, benefit auctioneers, they don't know what the other auctioneer is doing. They only hear about the, the events that didn't go 100% well. And so when something like undersells or an auctioneer says sold before they've hit the reserve, which is a big no-no, the, the thing that an auctioneer can do wrong is is get ahead of themselves. I, okay, I'm, I'm thinking of one. There was, this, there was this auctioneer who was so, I don't want to say his name, but he was a commercial auctioneer and he was so arrogant that he would turn off the crowd and it would make my job at, at the time as a ringman, someone who worked the floor of the auction uh, makes my job very difficult. And I'm, he, he put the ego before himself and Nietzsche said, ego will always interfere with progress. And that's certainly the case. And it takes a healthy ego to think you can get up in front of people and make them laugh and ask for money at the same time. Every auctioneer has to think that they're the best at their job, best in the world in order to have the gumption to get up there. But this guy thought a little too highly of himself and the auction just nothing sold. Nobody liked this guy. There was no trust, no rapport. It was just wah, awful. Wah. It was just such a dud. And after the auction, he was like, what happened, Zach? How come you didn't catch any bids? And I said, um, what's the difference between an auctioneer and God? And he boastfully says nothing. And nope. I say, God doesn't think he's an auctioneer. And I said that loud enough for it to be an earshot of other people and everyone just cracked up because, it, you know, clearly he just walked right into a joke that, you know, pointed out the obvious that his ego was was just way too big. And that happens a lot with auctioneers. There's there's prima donnas out there. And it's like I, I keep it all in the check because I realize that nobody is buying a ticket to come to this event to see Zach Crone do an auction. The, the It's the same mentality a DJ or a cover band would have where we're accoutrement were part of it. But at the same time as an auctioneer, you're very tied into the success of how well the nonprofit performs. I'm sure yeah. things go yeah. wrong when you forget that and don't put, you know, got to put the nonprofit first. That's really what, what it comes down to. And that's why they'll hire you back they, again they, and again. Because and they don't remember. They don't remember everything you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. And so the joy quota plays just as much as a role because I, I could press a really, you know, a, a board member or a friend of a board member for another $500 bid even after I think he's done. And that comes with time and instinct. But what, you know, to the point of what, making an extra $500 to upset a donor? That's not worth it. Right. You had a good year in 2019. Here we are at the beginning of 2021. 2020 was an interesting year <laughs> was it what for uh, just Why? just a little um <laughs> did you adapt how did you get oh, through 2020 and, and survive as an auctioneer i remember the day 
it was like March, what, 12th, 13th. I was, I was actually in an escrow and title office buying an investment property. <laughs> and all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up, cancellation, postponement, we need to talk. And boom, just like right off the bat, the rest of March and half of April were gone. I literally stepped out of the room and stopped the signing process, which would have made you as a real estate agent just like, go, what the heck? Uh, which is yeah. Exactly, which is exactly what happened to my real estate agent. He comes outside and goes, what the hell are you doing? And I said, I just lost my income for the next six weeks. And oh. he was like, well, you can't just walk away from this sale. And I was like, I don't know. Should I? I should keep my liquidity. And he was like, don't worry. You know, this thing will blow over. The market, if, if, if you come into a pinch, you'll just sell this and you'll make a little bit of a profit. I'll keep the commission low. <laughs> I was like, well, aren't you a mensch? And so I wound up buying the house. But there was kind of two camps that seemed to have happened. There was auctioneers who said, don't worry about it. Let's just postpone to do a live event in the fall. And there was auctioneers like me who said, no, 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 no. We got to do something. So I adapted very, very quickly. I think I actually did my first virtual fundraiser on the last Saturday of March. So only like two and a half weeks later, because nonprofits were calling me and they were saying, Zach, what do, what do we do? How do we, how do we prevent us from having to refund ticket sales, from having to give back sponsorship dollars, you know, but not offer them the same value proposition? I was like, we need to go virtual. And virtual events were already kind of like, you know, dab, dabbling in the market because you had these nonprofits with an international donor base or a coast to coast donor base. And so they're already talking about, you know, streaming the event on YouTube and getting people in, you know, New York or Florida or Chicago bidding for your event in LA. So I knew it was on the horizon. It seemed that COVID just kind of expedited it like it did many things and put it at the, at the forefront. And I learned really quick. I think my first three or four were just absolutely terrible because we had made the mistake of trying to put a gala on screen. And whenever you are watching anything on screen, you have this innate demand for entertainment value. And God bless them, but there isn't much entertainment value in a speech from you know a, a, either an award recipient or a chair or a president of some kind. Sure. Um, so I learned very, very quickly that this is television. And I've kind of been touting the fact that we are taking a page out of the Jerry Lewis telethon. And what Jerry did so well was reciprocity. He did one part entertainment, one part fundraising, one part entertainment, one part fundraising, back and forth, back and forth for several hours. And I'm still kind of preaching that to this day to, to the newcomers, but everyone's a first time client. It's like with you, every everybody's a first time home buyer. So there's a little more handholding involved, which is fine. Sure. And then as I continued to grow, I never thought my background in television would play such an integral role in fundraising, but here we are. And so all this is done now in studio. There's sometimes teleprompters, there's a mobile bidding app and page, and then there's the supplantation of value that live events had. Live events had the dress up and the networking and the filet and the DJ and the nice venue and, and all that fun high society stuff. And you have to replace all that with other methods of entertainment. And Luckily, these events are incredibly cheap to produce compared to a live event. You know, booking a venue is anywhere between ten to seventy thousand dollars, right. where booking a studio is going to be less than fifteen on average. So the cost benefit ratio of trying this new medium out is is certainly there, and it's not going anywhere. This is kind of this is kind of going from blockbuster to Netflix in so many ways, and you don't want to become 
blockbuster in a Netflix world. I mean, I'm sure people are going to go back to being in the room because you can't yeah. replace that that right. live event. But yeah. but you see this sticking around uh, oh, virtual auctions. To to do to be a good fundraiser is to apply to is to appeal to human nature, and there is an innate human nature to congregate, to not feel alone, to be a part of something bigger than yourself, to party, to to see and be seen. We are vain, lonely creatures, and we are always interested in a much more visceral experience. Same reason why theater is still alive and well, that kind of thing. Um, concerts and church, you know, church versus a virtual sermon. What's going to be more moving? So the live event will come back, I have no doubt. But yeah, I think virtual events are here to stay. And a lot of nonprofits and schools are making the mistake of thinking in such binary terms in a black and white world of do we virtual or live? And I'm saying, no, 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 no. Congratulations. Virtual and live. A whole new revenue stream is being carved out for you. Usually a nonprofit would do the gala in the spring and the golf tournament in the you know early fall. And now they have a third option uh, to throw in there. And that third option is very egalitarian. It's very accessible for the new donor base because the other side of human nature is to stay comfortable, stay on your couch, stay in your PJs, get food delivered to you, be a little more isolated. I think there's going to be this wonderful revival of live events when they can come back. There's going to be hybrid events that are going to accommodate the people who can't or won't come out to a live event. So it's going to be, you're going to have both. And then there's going to be those virtual events, which I think will integrate a whole new generation of donors to become familiar with philanthropic causes because the castle walls were kind of high with a live event. It costs a lot of money to attend one. And that wasn't always in, in the cards for a lot of people. But now it's, you know, it's practically free if you want it to be free to watch it on YouTube live or Vimeo live or Facebook live or whatever. Also, during the pandemic, while you went virtual, were you able to keep your seven employees or gainfully employed or semi-employed? <laughs> there was some overflow. The seven independent contractors who were auctioneers, they also moonlight. They had their other day jobs as well because I would always serve as consultant and I'd set up the event for them to conduct. They are all doing wonderful in their own right. One went back to car auctioneering. One is, is full-time real estate. One's actually a producer on a new show called Mom on CBS. His name is Steve Sandoval. He's great. Uh, another one is a, a buyer for different automotive things. So they're all still around should I need them. We did 50, I personally conducted 54 virtual events in 2020. Nice. So I kept myself pretty busy and... I, I learned recently that that's more than any auctioneer in the country to have done virtual fundraisers in that volume. Wow. And let's so, call yeah. Guinness about that one. Well, let's see. And there's, there's room always for them because they each bring a unique skill set based off of their location. Are they bilingual? Are they, you know, the closest thing you can get to me without being me? Are they going to be more, you know, flexible on price and things of that nature. So yeah, they're still there. They're, they're waiting in the wings and they're patient and, and they could be called upon when necessary. And these days I just kind of give them the job because of that new independent contractor law. Uh, even though we're classified as entertainers and I believe we're exempt, there's no point in taking the risk. So 
I can source leads for them. That's the best way I can put it and consult alongside them and help be a job creator without, um, you know, cause it is a gig. It's a one-time affair where you're being hired once for the entire year. So there's no need for any employment classification, but I think that's yeah. what a lot of small businesses are trying to learn and understand and adapt in 2020 is not only how do I keep afloat in 2020 because of all the, you know, laws and restrictions and, and business depending on your line of work, but also how do I navigate these new regulations? So California doesn't make it easy. Are you going to stay in California or uh, what do you plan? I'm always going to have a place in California. California is my home. I grew up in San Clemente, class of 2000, San Clemente Tritons. It's it's what I love. It's where I'm from and it's, it's always a part of me. And so California Coast Auctions isn't going anywhere by any means. But I think California is forcing a lot of people to look outside its borders for income. And, and so I've been targeting other underserved areas. Like I was looking at Portland and Seattle, but there's already so many benefit auctioneers there. They have it so canvassed. So Vegas is relatively underserved. Boise is underserved. I I do see myself expanding into those markets and will make strides to do so. And while at the same time, by not having to consult and manage on 265 events and keep myself at around the 50 to 60 mark. That's one to two auctions a week. That leaves me time to spend with my six-year-old and my two-year-old boys and more time with the wife and get my pilot's license and check off some other boxes as I, you know, life in your career is like a series of hills and mountains. I, I, you get to the top of the first mountain, which is essentially get your career to the point where you can buy a house, establish a client base and have, you know, kind of a regulatory expected amount of income. And then you do think about what could be more and what the next step is. And for me, it's always been a certain degree of media in one degree or another. I was always meant to be on the microphone. I can tell you that. You have have the voice. (laughs) That's for sure. Thank you. I hope I probably have the face too for radio. I I love being in front of people. I, I think Jerry Seinfeld said people's biggest fears are public speaking and dying which means you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy uh, for most people. I happen to do two things that people can't stand at all, asking for money and public speaking. And so I think there's always going to be room for me in the auction world and auction industry. And I absolutely love it because it's been really good to me. And I could have got into selling you know, commercial real estate at auction and probably retired at 45, <laughs> but I... I wanted to make my life mean something and I wanted it to give back. I didn't want to just take a withdrawal from this world or this planet. And I wanted to set a good example for my kids that yes, there are jobs and careers in which you can help people and things can get better. So, you know, if I couldn't do this, I would, I would find a way, you know, I'd see if Greenpeace or the Peace Corps were hiring and I'd be digging ditches somewhere. But I think it's important to have a, a net return on your life. in this planet. So if I solely focused on my career, I would probably have a much different life, but I would also have a much different level of happiness in that life. Wow. Nicely put. Listen, we're just about out of time, but I do want to ask you if there are people that are, are out there looking to get into your line of work, do you have any advice that you would give them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, First, you have to almost develop the same skills as that of an actor. You have to learn your way around improv and feel comfortable in your own skin on stage. And there's only one way to do that, and that's by doing it. 
Um, you can, you can't pick that skill up in a book. It's like a musical instrument. So get practicing on that and take that seriously because otherwise you'd be stuck in the commercial auction realm. There are auction schools. I went to auction school, the Worldwide College of Auctioneering. It was a 12-day intensive uh, where you learn to do the chant in all matters of forms, the legalities and the ethics of different aspects of auctions. And so any aspect of the auction industry can be learned and picked up. They like to say a good auctioneer is born, not made. And while that's true to an extent, I think anyone who has the gift of gab, the gift of sales, a personality and customer service and is not afraid to get on the mic can thrive in it because it's still a very underserved niche profession. Uh, While at the same time it is somewhat freelance and it is very competitive, it's always about the hustle. It's always about how well you market yourself and how well you treat others and how you are willing to kind of apprenticeship. It's one of those few careers now. I'm sure when you were starting out in the real estate game, you would start by doing rental properties and holding open houses for another agent. And then- you know, so don't be a, be patient in that process. There is a lot to learn because it's a very instinctual job. So, you know, you pay your dues in this industry to get to where you want to be and be committed because this is a seven day a week job. I am on the phone, on Zoom, in meetings, Monday through Friday, and then I'm doing auctions on Saturday and sometimes Sunday as well. So there's not a lot of time off. Because when you do run your own business, you're either working on your business or in your business. And if you're not doing the auction, you're still doing all the admin stuff and all the state requirement stuff and, you know, having a corporation. And you're also working on your marketing in one way, shape or form and trying to move forward in other fields of the auction industry. And you go where your interests are. If you're interested in learning about auction software, you go in that direction. If you're interested in auction consignment, Selling vacation packages, you can go in that direction. Uh, Or if you're just like me, uh, you like to remain impartial and kind of be friends with everyone and kind of create a family office. That's that's kind of like the new buzzword, isn't it? It's kind of like what Blue Ocean Strategy was 10 years ago. The family office is like a consortium of like-minded individuals in the same industry who you often turn to. You're not you're not in the same company, but you do find yourself working together on the same event or the same deals. So like you have your mortgage broker, you have your pool guy, you have your landscape guy, you have your escrow and title people that you like best. And it's kind of the same thing in my line of work because there are the auction software companies that you like or the consignment companies you like or the venues you like. And you try to guide them as best you can as to who's going to be the best fit. And that's what makes for a good consultant is to remain impartial, remain neutral. (laughs) <laughs> I think you found your calling. It's it's really you're you're poetic when you speak about this, and I really appreciate your time here. Will you tell our listeners where they can find you if they want to learn more about your business? You can go to either zachcrone.com, which will take you to California Coast Auctions, cacoastauctions.com. You can find a lot of my exploits as well on Facebook and Instagram under Zach Crone or Zach Crone underscore auctioneer. And I'm working on this kind of new venture with a friend of mine called Idaho Benefit Events, where I'm franchising my work up to Idaho, where live events will probably come back a lot sooner than they will in Southern California. So that's going to be released pretty soon. But California Coast Auctions has everything you could ever hope to find on me in every aspect of shameless self-promotion. Awesome. So thank you, Cameron. Appreciate the time. Take care, Zach. Thank you. Now that was fascinating. It's so great that Zach devotes his business to helping charities and nonprofits 
and he has the opportunity to be a part of pop culture history, if you will. Can you imagine being the one who auctions off all that memorabilia? And now I'd like to thank you, the listener, for sticking through the first episode of My Bright Idea. Please take a moment to hit subscribe so you can hear all of my upcoming episodes with more fun and inspirational stories from small business owners. And if you would like to see our guest bios or be a part of the discussions behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook. Just type in My Bright Idea and join the group. If you or anyone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, please go to mybrightideapodcast.com, go to be a guest and submit your story there. Thank you, everyone. I wish all of you an abundance of success and happiness, and we'll see you next time.